Welcome to Change My Mind. Over 80% of people think we are becoming more divided. But does it have to be that way? We're bringing together leaders to ask them about a time they changed their mind and why, giving us all an insight into what holds us back and why changing our mind can be such a powerful thing. I'm Ali Goldsworthy, based at Stanford in California and founder of the Depolarization Project. Hosting alongside me today is Laura Osborne, a corporate affairs expert who's fascinated by what impacts reputation and makes it so hard for people to change their position. Thanks, Ali. I'm so pleased to chat to our guest tonight. He sprung to my mind immediately when we started thinking about who to invite on the show, as he's changed people's minds on loads of issues over the course of his career and has a real insider's view of both business and politics. Now, normally we're also joined by Alex Chesterfield, Conservative Counselor and Behavioural Economics expert. But Alex is so brilliant that she's currently in such high demand at work that she is not available to do this one. So uh, we'll miss her very much. But this time it's just me and Ali and our wonderful guest. And he's Craig Beaumont, a well-known face in UK political and business circles and currently Director of External Affairs and Advocacy at the Federation of Small Businesses. Craig previously advised Seb Coe and the London Olympics team on policy and reputation issues, but started his career as an advisor in 10 Downing Street. At the FSB, Craig's overseen a real step change in how small businesses are viewed by government, taking the issues that impact their 160,000 plus members right to the heart of the political agenda. We wanted to talk to Craig about his experience of changing decision makers' minds and really dig into his views on what constrains and polarises debate in the small business community today. Craig, thank you so much for joining us. Hello. So Craig, in your day job, you often have to find consensus between a lot of differing views, which is never an easy task. Can you tell us a bit about how you've done that? So, well, the Federation of Small Businesses has uh, 165,000 members and they're all human beings. So while other groups, other business groups you may have heard of are corporate membership, this is very, very human. So each one of those has a perspective and trying to create something that addresses as many of their questions, points, views as possible um, in creating a policy position or perhaps a campaign and then going and delivering it and still keeping that resonance with the membership is quite difficult because there's a risk that if you do something that they all agree with, you end up with something that's quite weak and not worth fighting for. So that's the tension between having something that you can, you know, you basically start off with, I would say, facts and evidence, which I think some of your other guests have talked about. Um, So we'd think of a policy topic, get a lot of evidence, come out with some ideas for change, test those members, and then if that works, go and fight for them. And sometimes you have to take members on a journey with that as well. So you would have an idea that sounds great to you, and then when it actually reaches real business people, that idea may, you know, the first sight of the first kind of contact, it might not work. And you've got to take that back and change your mind. So it must be incredibly frustrating having gone through that process to get the membership fully behind you if it then becomes quite difficult to win politicians over. How how do you go about changing their minds? That's true, actually. So um, if anything, that's probably my job and the staff team here at, uh, at our Westminster office. So we, if you like, we're not small business people, we're the staff. So we have the political expertise and the policy expertise, and the media expertise, hopefully, that would then, you know, test that policy idea and, and, and bring that political now to make sure it actually lands. So we know what people's agendas are, we know how to fit into those agendas. And that's the negotiation that kind of happens. So if you uh, I'll give you an example, if you were to ask all small businesses what they thought about regulation, 
you know, they will come back and say there's too much regulation. You go, that's fine. But, you know, if you ask them, name a regulation that really affects their business, you'd get lots of disparate answers. And if you even look at the answers, some of those may not be regulations. So you're starting off in a very imperfect situation. But what we cannot do is go into politics and ask for a bonfire of regulations. That is not where politics is. Politics is about creating change, and it depends on who's in power as to what changes you can get. Um, and that's all of this is a negotiation and a debate and a discussion. So what I like about your podcast about changing your mind is the negotiation of that is really interesting. You do have to create a place where people can raise anything they want and create open discussion and then use facts and evidence to define what to do and then get everyone to back it. On that, when you run focus groups, it can sometimes be the case that people will air views that make others almost recoil. How do you manage those situations when, when I suppose, when those happen? That's quite interesting. So you, I, I would say that's more of a debate than a discussion. And what I want to, when I was thinking about this podcast, what I want to do in this building between the staff is actually create an atmosphere where they can suggest ideas and then take on their peers' views. And it's the same with the membership. So, you know, on Brexit, which I know we go, well, we will probably come on to is you just can't avoid Brexit. Um, it, within our membership, we have two very strong groups of membership uh, who have very opposite views. So half of the small business community wanted to leave Europe just before the referendum. We did a, te- a check and it was at 41% wanted to leave Europe and 47% wanted to stay in Europe. They're very sure of their views. Um, so that meant that we could have, you know, tried to create a bit of a, f- a fudgy kind of centre position. But instead, we decided to to keep this as it was. There are two strong viewpoints here in the membership. And that means that you, you end up, you know, finding ways to express that. So we, we, we took, we created 10 top questions on the debate for small business, took them to both the campaigns and said to them, answer these questions, and then got the answers assessed by full fact. Um, so you're basically taking a bit of the passion out of it and going, you know what, we are split. We are genuinely split publicly within our membership, we, you know, no bones about it. And therefore, this is our kind of process. And, th- and then after the referendum, we actually took a view that the referendum has happened uh, and we now need to move forward. So we took a decision to try and influence what that Brexit looked like rather than staying in those two silos. That's really interesting. We were talking to one of our other guests, Peter Gabriel, about how you do that, about how you move back and forth on a view sometimes and, and whether it is possible to hold two different views pretty much at the same time. Now, obviously, with your membership, sometimes that's going to be the case. So how have you managed that in practice? How do you go about giving both views the weight that they need? I think you, you would start off talking about it's 165,000 people you know, these people are not going to have the same view. So you start off looking at that. If you can get a majority of the membership behind something, then you've, you've got there, then you can go and fight for it. If it's not, then you do have to be very honest about that and say, you know what, there's, there's, there is not going to be a resolution on this one topic. So therefore, on this issue, these, this is what members, perhaps this is what exporters would like. So taking Brexit, this is what exporting members are really wanting to see. This is what members who employ an EU citizen on their workforce really needs to see. However, you've got to accept the other side, which is a business that doesn't export, that doesn't feel it has a uses in the workforce, who may not feel so directly connected to the EU, and you've got to represent their views too. So it's how you represent that, and you do it factually, always go back to the evidence, and then you can't basically be accused of bias. So Brexit has become obviously so 
dominant, but you have had a number of significant campaign wins over the last few months, um, notwithstanding that at a time when the domestic agenda has been pretty squeezed out of a, of a lot of the debate. How have you done that? And you know, can you tell us a bit about how you've managed to find that space for your voice and the voice of your members? I think I think everyone's talking about the bandwidth of ministers being taken up by Brexit, and I think that's true. Um, and, but that then informs your strategy. So a lot of our members felt that Brexit had taken over everything and that we weren't getting cut through. So that becomes part of your messaging, is actually, politicians, it's time now to focus on the domestic agenda. Don't forget don't forget the domestic actually became a line that we started to use in lots of our meetings. Um, so we went in, we thought, right, let's, let's take a step back. What domestic do you, do you want to change? Uh, if I use a couple of examples, um, one of them uh, is on late payments. Uh, every small business, it tends to be if, about 80% of small businesses are affected by being paid late. Mm-hmm. And we worked out where it was. Yeah, 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 massive issue. The average, you know, delayed payments is £6,000. The average delay is six weeks. You know, this is, and that changes how a small business operates. So to create change, you've got lots of initiatives that have been happening in government, but they're not enough. Um, small business commissioner, this new duty to report makes every large company has to be public about its payment terms. But that's all transparency. We needed a bit more. So we went in and we said we would like a non-exec director responsible on every company's board for the supply chain. And there wasn't a mechanism to get this, but there was a debate about workers on boards and customers mm-hmm. on boards mm-hmm. and, and how on earth you can do this. So we've slotted into an existing debate. Sort of wider corporate governance. That's right. So we, we managed to work out a way in that, 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 that got our issue raised. Um, the Select Committee has now published its report so we're now we're now about to get the change that we want. The government's had had a call to evidence. So we found some bandwidth. We found a way in that kind of got in under the topic that was dominant. Um, and similarly, on things like the budget we just had, it, it was clear with all our pre-budget discussions that the um, Brexit was dominating. But the, the one area that, that could be seen to have some progress is the high street. It was clearly going to be a political bat- battleground. You had two perspectives from Labour and the Conservatives battling over it. So we created a a five-point plan for the high street. It was This wasn't radical policy. This was existing policy grouped in a way we hadn't done it before, published on the website, got our members engaged, raised it with MPs. A month later, Labour came out with its five-point plan for the high street. I don't know where they got that idea from. Um, and we knew that we were four weeks before the budget, the budget would be the battleground for the Conservative Party to come back. And they published um, a, a business rates package which was designed with, that, with our input. So we, it's, it's basically, I, I would say, being a bit tactical with politics, working out where your opportunity is and then going in and getting it. Talking of tactics and methods, I just wanted to jump back to one of your earlier answers when you were talking about people having very disparate views and how that was more of a, a debate than a discussion. I just wondered, in the context of Brexit, there's been a lot of hoo-ha in the last few weeks about if there should be a debate between Prime Minister May and Jeremy Corbyn, who's the leader of the opposition. And the result is that fell completely flat and there there wasn't a debate between the leaders. But how effective do you think that actually would have been at uh, helping to get to a resolution? I instinctively like debates. I was thinking this in my mind earlier. You've got Prime Minister's questions, which is basically two oppositional fights with lots of other people chipping in and you know everyone says it's punch and judy politics and nothing gets done but I look at that and I go but it's the most watched bit of British politics uh, it, you know it is it is the clip that everyone watches nobody watches committees at work nobody watches the what's going on where actually a lot of the progress is made 
So I think having a debate is useful to attract interest and to spotlight issues, but it's probably not going to be the resolution of that issue. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's really effective for scrutiny. Well, if it's done well, which it often isn't right now, Prime Minister's question can shine a light on something, but I'm really not sure it helps lead to any kind of resolution to me and to to Alex, our colleague. We were talking about how from a behavioural insight point of view, having a debate just entrenches people. So, and it polarises them more because when people are exposed to a view that they like, so they hear Corbyn and they think, oh, isn't he great? He's speaking up for the many, not the few. That really resonates. Or Theresa May, she's a bloody difficult woman, but she'll stick her heels in and really stand up for us as a consequence. They pick those points up rather than critique their own side and reflect. So you come out in a worse position from a debate than the one that where you were when you started. Uh, then that last bit, I'm not, I wouldn't agree with. So you've got, you do have these two figures and they're, they're not going to agree. They're not, no, one, they're, one they're, of them is not going to accept agree. it. Absolutely. They're but, never going to agree, but it's the, the viewers And then, home. yes, then you go backwards to the people watching. I think that's true of, of certain percentage on both sides. But I think people like me would watch because actually I would be genuinely interested to know when these two positions that I probably know relatively well already, when they interact and when they respond to each other, will I learn something new? Because it's, it's, if you're in your echo chamber on Facebook, hearing all your friends saying what you think, you don't actually get the other side at all. So do you think that debate perhaps gives you a better insight into the strengths and weaknesses of both sides of the argument? Yeah, it gives you, there is actually, so yes, it's, it's, it's combative, but at least there's a, it, it is a, a device to get you to think about, or at least to know about both sides. So That can be useful. So the PM's debate, do you remember the Prime Minister's yes. debate, where the Prime Minister didn't attend, um, but the party leaders did before the general election? So I think that was useful to see what each of them is like under pressure in a way that they haven't been before. But did we learn enough about the topics? No, you're probably right. Do you think you're terribly normal in how you think? I mean, do you think most people process like you or do you consider things and think in a different way? Oh, that's that's really tricky. Um, I suppose my reference group is my family where I do think very differently to my family. Uh, my friends, I think I probably, because you choose your friends, you end up thinking you're the same as everyone. Uh, work is quite an interesting structure, though, because that in here uh, at the Financial Small Business with the staff, I want people to raise their views. And I, I learn so much from my colleagues um, in a way that I probably don't from my friendship group and my family. Yeah, I mean, the evidence is that you're really very atypical in that you seem very open-minded, when you go to these debates and, and follow through, I mean, people often don't like to describe themselves as closed-minded, but really when you were describing your behaviour, I was thinking it was terribly unusual. And I don't know how aware you are of that. You know, I mean, and I was wondering what made you think that way. And I suppose maybe it was your work, which has conditioned you to respond in a different way, maybe, than most other people. Well, also, I suppose I'm the, if, if this, if the Federation was, was a government department, I'd be a permanent secretary or cabinet secretary to all these ministers who are, these are the members who elect themselves. They are the ones who hold the power. They are, we are member led, but I help them, I help them do that. But I'm not going to walk in and tell a small business owner what would help his or her business. So I suppose, yeah, in, instinctively as an organization, I'm here to support and help, uh, advise and, and implement. 
I'm not here to take the decisions. But that I suppose that does then reflect on my personal life and how I think. I love to hear people's views. I think it's great. And, you know, I'm helpful here that I feel, you know, I'm I'm quite senior on the team, so therefore I'm able to make the decisions at the end. So actually I've got the two good things. I've got the final decision, but I also have the ability to consult and hear. That's interesting. I always get the impression that it's quite difficult for businesses to discuss something before they have fully formed their opinion on it. I think that's probably comes from a reputational risk, uh, fear, and you know that sort of um, nervousness around scrutiny. But I do feel like there must be a greater role for business in some of these big societal debates. How do you think we can make business more comfortable in engaging before its views on these wider issues are fully formed? I think it's taking it away from the immediate. So the, the accountability and scrutiny is really about what's happening right now. So, you know, there's a meaningful vote coming up. Obviously, it's taking place before this is put out. So not, let's not guess, get ahead of ourselves. Oh, go on, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, get, there will be a push to ask business, what's your response to this? What happens next? And, you know, we'll be in there, we'll be politically aware, and we'll come out with a, with a view. But to get business leaders to start thinking better, you've got to create an environment or a, or a moment or a mechanism for them to debate policy. So um, if I could use 2015 election as, a, as an example, um, general elections, you tend to have no notice in the past. And then suddenly we got the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, which means you had you knew an election was coming on this date, the first time ever. Um, rather than the Prime Minister just deciding and, you know, six weeks later. Oh, yeah, yeah, off we go. For our American listeners, that's a peculiarity of the UK. Um, for people used to fix time periods and certainty when an election is, I, I know it could seem quite odd. Yeah, so that, but that moment for the first time, nine months before an election, it's like, okay, what are we going to ask for? Because a manifesto from a lobby group is that can be very influential if it has the right stuff and it's sold at the right time. So our... I could have written that on my own pretty easily. I would have done, come out with some things and I would have got in and fought for them, but that's not enough. It has to have resonance. So we decided to um, to announce we were going to have a manifesto, a campaign wrapped around it called IVAC Small Business, and we would go in with that to politicians, candidates, every major party. And then that enabled us to hold uh, a conference. And at that conference, it was like, right, what do you want today? Not quite so blank slate. But you, we came up with certain rules, and I love these rules. They're things like, because if you have 100 small business owners in the room and ask them what do they want or what's wrong, you will get 100 complaints of things they want to change. And that's not cohesive, um, and it's also not an action. So it was like, right, we're going to have some four or five themes, and here are some ideas for those themes. Within that, here are some asks that could be there. It has to be evidence-based. It has to be positive. So you can't have criticisms in there or negatives. It can't be a whinge list, to use one word. Um, and, you know, when we brought it all together, we went back to these groups. We had small breakouts and discussions. We'd never done this before. And it was, it, was, it, was, it was wonderful to watch. And then also, you know, they had some instance, like we were talking about how to make markets work better. And it was the market economy we were talking about. But one member said, well, my market locally is great. And then you suddenly realise that your language needs to change because someone misunderstood what you said. So lots of little things like that. Um, and that then grew and grew and grew through the thing, through the whole process, into this document, into a big website. We worked out how to group it by nation so that you had a bit of, lo- and then regions, so you had a bit of local um, connectivity. And that meant the members owned it. So suddenly we had all these small business owners, no matter what they thought, 
they felt really proud of it. And that led to more people discussing it. So you've you've taken it away from the immediate media um, environment, the immediate response environment, the accountability, the risk of having someone out there talking for you, taking it out and gone, what do we think? Mm. And actually having that what do we think conversation was really good. And of course, then we had the 2017 election, which was you know sudden and un- unplanned. So we couldn't quite do it again. But I do think this is something that uh, is helpful for discussion, and, but not debate. I completely agree with that. You know, actually, when Ali and I both worked at which had a very large supporter base and we often used to go out and just quickly poll them on the issues that meant the most to them. You know, we, we would have a shortlist and we didn't have very much time for the 2017 election either, but we did do that. And although all the issues we'd been talking about internally were definitely in the mix, the order of priority was actually a little bit different. So, you know, there was definitely a valuable lesson for us there. And I think there is something about listening um, to your supporters or your customers or whoever that may be. And I wonder whether, in your view, you know, business is doing that enough as it goes through these debates, whether it's listening to that broader group of voices that surround it, you know, within its um, customer base or its supply chain or, or wherever it may be, and factoring that into the equation. I've not really probed about about how businesses talk to their customers, especially within their membership, but also just more broadly in the, in the policy discussion. That's very interesting. So if you're a big brand that rests on trust with the brand, I can imagine that you need to connect with your customers. But how is that presented? So, you know, I mentioned late payments. If, you know, we've found some pretty poor practice and the base select committee came out with it. So these are companies like Boots and WH Smith uh, and all these things who are paying people late. Now, what do customers think about that? Mm-hmm. When they're buying into the, the, the great Christmas campaigns, how does that fit with the values of the company? You know, will it change people's minds? I'm actually not sure it definitely would. It's not high profile enough, perhaps. But surely that company should be looking at how they can engage with customers. And, and if they're looking at their reputation, how do they talk to customers to, to reassure them that they're not some big multinational that doesn't care about their customers and also how they deal with their small companies they work with? Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in that because there's a hypothesis that we're developing. There's a, a huge, big push on diversity and inclusion that's based on quite a lot of evidence that gender or racially diverse workplaces are really helpful for the bottom line, uh, albeit with a, a few conditioning factors like attitude to innovation. But within that inclusion debate, viewpoint and thought diversity really doesn't seem to have played a role so far. And and should it? And would it lead to better scrutiny and innovation if we had more intellectually diverse workplaces as well? So I, I guess what I'm wondering is in the many, many interactions that you've had with small businesses, do you have any view on that? So if they're within a small company, you tend to have it centered around one person, the small business owner, because we don't tend to have boards. We don't have we don't have that same structure as a multinational would have or a larger company would have. And in this country, um, 5.6 million businesses, but 5.6 million of those are small businesses. Um, there's only 30,000 medium and 7,000 large. So, so I so, suppose but if you think about startups, I appreciate that you know they're, they're not going to be suddenly listed on the stock market, the groups that you work with. But. Okay, so how do you think you can do that then in a small business? You know, I'm, I'm thinking about this from a very personal perspective when I talk about this because my father ran his own small business for you know, upwards of 30 years and pretty much every decision he made was 
based around his own gut instinct and his view of the world. And I think for what he did, that was probably okay, but there are going to be situations where that's less so. So if you are in that sort of one person business scenario, how do you think you can seek out those other viewpoints, that diversity of thought? The the small business owner is the centre and he or she will then buy in the skills they need for the workforce to deliver and they might expand or they might not that all the decisions are made by them and they might get input. They will probably get input from these experts effectively that they've recruited, but they must get most of their kind of discussion and debate over key topics from their peers. And it's through things like FSB that you can do that. You know, you meet your your competitors and you meet your um, counterparts. And that's probably where you get your challenge and interest. And one thing I have learned from looking at small business owners is if you see someone else doing something that gives them a competitive advantage, then you're going to take notice. But to find out about that is quite hard. Okay, so coming in with a big question now, what is it that you think businesses and or politicians most need to change their mind on right now? So I thought about this for for, for businesses in particular. It's quite hard for me to tell a business what, what they should think. Um, <laughs> Go on. But... <laughs> Uh, but I do think there are. Tell them you did the podcast. <laughs> but I do think there are some uh, some future areas they should focus on. So I'll put it like put it like that. Some things that we talked about: small business owners being the centre and, and being the single person at the top of the business, the centre of the business. So that can be quite isolating. And I think that yeah, high pressure. You don't always know where to go to get some help. So um, everyone's talking quite a lot about mental health at the moment. And actually, I think the small business owner, when they're challenged about mental health or think about their employees, they don't tend to think of themselves. Mm-hmm. So when, you know, actually on all sorts of topics has happened. So when pensions auto-enrolment came in, you often find the small business owner working night and day to make that work for their employees, but they forget their own pension arrangements. Mm-hmm. And they don't save for their own pensions. They don't think of themselves mm-hmm. because they're thinking about their business. Um, so there's one thing about, educating, I would say, small business owners to reach out when they need help and work out when that is and who to go to. Um, That's one thing I would like business to think a lot more of. And you did mention diversity and inclusion. Um, I would say that diversity is a reality of society and inclusion is what you do to recognise that. So for a business, you know, when I first arrived at FSB, you'd you'd ask um, one person from a local area to come together for a meeting, so, you know, 30 people. And you would find that they'd all choose their regional chairman and it would be a man. So you'd have to start thinking about that doesn't really represent business. It doesn't really represent the membership. So how do we change that? And now, you know, we have one in three of our members is female. That's great. What about the other strands of diversity? How do you get more people to serve a business from these groups? Because one in three is great, but it should be one in two. Why aren't women setting up in business? What can we do to make business different? And is that whole male clubby thing the problem? And how do you change that? Um, so we're doing all sorts of work to try and reach out to these co- these communities. Never before thought about joining FSB or setting up a business and finding out, well, okay, is there anything specific that would help? There is definitely something there. And I wonder if it is connected to confidence. I was reading something on social media earlier talking about, you know, the willingness of men to quite confidently pitch an idea and women wanting to have made it work at some level, albeit potentially quite small, to test the, you know, the proposition before they even really want to talk to anyone about it. So I wondered what your experience is um, from the FSB of that and whether you've got any thoughts on, you know, how we might start to tackle it. 
I have a, I'm very conscious I'm, in a, I'm the only man in a room with two women telling women, telling, telling you what women think is particularly inappropriate. But, um, you do represent a, a body. So, I mean, I did, you do see a lot of coverage about interviews as well and how women put, put themselves across in interviews, which is uh, versus men and men will just take a risk and say, oh, yeah, I can do that. Well, I can apply for that job. I've got that one skill. I can do that. And then women are looking and saying, well, I can only do three of the five. So maybe not. So there is a, I think there is something in confidence. Um, one thing we have spotted when we're looking at access to finance, you know, major issues, small businesses, that um, women aren't tending to go and seek to seek finance. You know, and is that a confidence thing? Do they think they'll go to the bank and get told no? Um, is it a risk to take finance? And is there something about risk that might need to change in business? Uh, where men are more e- more uh, find taking risk easier. Yeah, there's definitely some cyclical pattern recognition to that. So, where women don't see other women getting funded, then they don't tend to come forwards themselves. And unfortunately, it works the other way too, which is maybe more damaging. That um, uh, male investors, and it's a traditionally male-dominated environment, if they're not used to investing in women, that they won't go and seek them out either. And that's generally a subconscious level that that behavior manifests. Now, Craig, we asked you, as we do all of our guests, to have a bit of a think about an issue that you've changed your mind on. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what that is? Yeah, so I think this pales into insignificance compared to some of your previous guests that I've heard. So some one person changed their mind about getting married, for example. This is not that. So I try. <laughs> I try you got three kids. Uh, <laughs> I do not. I do not. Um, I know a woman who. <laughs> I, so I'm, uh, I decided on a, on a policy issue. So when I started looking at politics, I studied politics. So I kind of knew my stuff. I was interested in how the constitution worked and everything like this. And when I came through and the Blair government got elected. Um, they pursued a policy of devolution. And I remember thinking, oh, de- devolution thing, this doesn't quite work. There's no real uh, picture of the end point. There's no journey to it. There's no overarching theme. There's just single projects. So, you know, devolving power to Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, less power to London, and a bit more regionally, but not really. And every single initiative was separate and on its own. I looked at that and I thought, this, this really doesn't work. It's, it's just constitutionally it just does not work um and then i started to do some work in the in the tourism industry uh working for visit britain visit london and a few other the tourism organizations and then tourism was devolved and it was devolved to scotland and uh, this is the case i want to use um across the country tourism was the seventh or sixth biggest industry in scotland it's the first it's number one um but the size of that industry because it's scotland is about 20 percent while england was closer to you know, close to 80%. But it was interesting that tourism was run by this department in Whitehall, amongst other priorities, wasn't really at the top. So suddenly you had a Scottish government and a, sorry, a parliament in Scotland coming out with a, a new tourism policy, devoting money to it. And you saw so much change. You saw um, tourism promotion of Scotland around the world totally radically reform. And that could only have happened with devolution. So I looked at that. I looked at the examples in Wales and London, I saw really good, cool activity taking place that could not possibly have happened. So I had to change my view and I changed it entirely. And I think devolution is, uh, you know, is a solution to a lot of problems. And actually in the policy terms, I love being a UK you know, lead staff. Uh, I have a counterpart to look after Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. And that means that on some policy issues, you'll have competition between the four. 
that's not a bad thing. And you can see something happening somewhere else and you can copy and paste it and bring it back to your own area and go, well, they've got it and it works. We want to use that. This feels like a good moment for you to say something about organ donation, Ali. Uh, thanks, Laura. Yeah, I, I used to run the organ donation campaign in Wales, the one that led to opt-out organ donation. And I'm Welsh, so I'm really delighted to hear, Craig, that you think devolution's a good thing. Um, and the Welsh government were really determined to demonstrate that the power that they had was being used for for good and they it was worth them having it they were doing something different so for our american listeners the uk is divided in two different parts with areas being given some different powers um, and they really did differ from place to place with none of it really written down in a formal constitution if you think that's confusing you're right it is um wales have been given a really pretty poor settlement especially when it was compared to scotland and so the government there was so keen to show that they could do something different and we managed to convince them that being the first place in the UK to change the law on organ donation should be it. And what's really interesting is exactly what you were saying, Craig, that it then ricocheted around the rest of the UK. So it's a really good place to get change, a really good way to do it. Because I think people found it easier to be brave and bold when they knew their audience really well and it was something that they may be quite liked. And it, it can become an attitude that's really quite embedded. I see that particularly in Scotland. Yes. I mean, you, I think you see a bit of experimental policymaking that you could not have had before. Yeah. Um, and then you've got catch up <laughs> from other people. Or indeed, if ideas, if ideas fail, that, that's okay too. That doesn't mean that you know it affects the whole of the union. If something doesn't quite work, it can be tailored and changed. So how much do you think changing your mind was linked to the contact and the direct experience of what was going on on the ground? Uh, it was entirely personal experience. So seeing that change, I was never under pressure to change my mind or because I didn't express that view there. So it was a personal viewpoint that was changed by my professional experience. So seeing that work, seeing positive things and going, actually, I, I got this wrong. I got this very wrong. It's great. It's, you know, so I'm now a big fan of where that power to make decisions should be, and it shouldn't be centralised in one person. Um, so, you know, for small businesses, you can pick any topic. Uh, let's pick one. Let's uh, apprenticeships. You know, we all want to see more people take up apprenticeships. It's a very difficult policy area because the startups are down, so you've got to look at different support. But it's devolved policy. So, yes, I could sit here in the UK and come out with an apprenticeships policy, but it doesn't work. Um, Scotland had its own view of where it wants to take it. Wales has its own view. You must have four different solutions to probably what is the same issue. So the small business owner will face the same issue, but the solution that politicians provide in response is different. And how much do you think your shift reflects a change in the view of your membership? I think it, I think it probably is reflected in the membership. So um, when I travel the country and meet members, they feel quite close to their local FSB. So in Scotland, it'll be actually when they think of FSB, they'll think of FSB Scotland because it's the closest and they see it in the profile, they see it in the branding, they see it in the people. Um, and I'd say you'd see that just about everywhere. Um, we did, you know, if you look at the regional regions in England, it's slightly different because when you get down to say the Southeast, very few people will think of the Southeast as a identity label. So you have to do that slightly differently. Because we started by talking about Brexit, I wondered, did you see any tie or relationship 
for anecdotally even, between the people who talked about wanting power to be closer to them in Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, and the the most resonant slogan of the Leave campaign, which was to take back control. That, so no, I see the opposite. So in um, in, a, in all of our evidence, they actually ended up virtually matching the popular vote. So our members in Scotland who feel close to their Scottish um, FSB. Scotland and London had the highest percentage of people who wanted to remain, while if you went to Yorkshire and, and the Midlands, it was a different story. So even though both Scotland and London have devolved powers, they were the ones who wanted to remain. So in your, I'm exaggerating the point, to take back control, that had more residents in, in areas in the middle rather than in Scotland or in London. So having changed your mind on something that you recognise is quite important to you now, do you think it would be possible for someone to change your mind back? Only if it fell over. <laughs> I think I would, I, would have to, I would have to see it do bad things for me to change my mind. And I'm not, I'm not saying I'm not open to that. I think it's unlikely. So I suppose I'm protecting myself. So I ask that because that's something we've observed quite a bit in the people that we've interviewed so far is that once they've changed their mind on a view, it's generally come from quite a strong personal experience or set of circumstances that has, has really caused them to pivot. And, and that's underpinned by research as well, actually. So interested to know how that feels for you. But then someone like Winston Churchill changed party quite a few times. So I don't know if something stays, if you change once, whether it's easier to change or whether it becomes more entrenched. I mean, maybe there are examples. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I'd Churchill is a terribly moral example of why he changed parties. I mean, he, he was a liberal conservative whose parties changed around him, but it, it did really play electorally very well for him that he changed parties um, when he he did. That's quite interesting. So do you think in the modern time, I'm interviewing you, um, but if someone changes their mind a few times, do, do people maybe, would they, is there a risk that someone thinks they're no longer sound because, oh, they'll change their mind a fourth time? Well, there's definitely something in that. If you look at the way the Brexit vote is going at the minute, MPs who may have been Remain supporters, but their constituency then voted to leave are really trying to honour that often. Um, but then the Remain supporters who they were originally feel abandoned and what if this has come to be the case um, and many believe that a deal comes through and it's not really a good deal or it's one they find very personally difficult to sign up to. What do those MPs do then? Who who do they honour and where does their conscience in that? So there's a lot of negativity that comes to politicians when they change their mind, even if the evidence or the situation around it has altered. I feel like that's definitely the case for businesses as well in the sense that it's very challenging to change your mind publicly as a business when new evidence arises if you have said or in particular if your leader has said something to the contrary and I I do wonder about that in terms of you know what we as the public demand from our leaders whether they are politicians or business people that we actually make it extremely difficult for them to change position by being quite unforgiving um, of that type of almost considered approach. So we are very interested in your view on that, Craig. So that means that that would, if you take that through, that means the public, we'd all be able to let change our minds at the drop of a hat and that's fine. But the people that we elect, do, do they have a slightly different responsibility? So, I mean, I do hear a lot of, at the moment about Brexit, you know, I elected politicians, I elected politicians to do their job. 
and I don't feel they have, you know, if a politician was changing their minds without referencing back to the people, that would be a democratic deficit. So I think I think there should be something that enables them to change their mind on policy terms and then to present well, themselves. Yeah, yeah, and then present themselves to the people and and actually come back again. They, they should go back to the people at some stage because if they keep, otherwise it, there's no point having an election. Well, I guess that was Theresa May's hope for the general election and then that proved to give her an inconclusive result. And to your point about leaders changing their mind, I mean... Donald Trump seems to wake up and change his mind on something every morning. Vladimir Putin changes his mind all the time. Boris Johnson really does change his mind and flip-flop all over the place. And of the many accusations that get thrown at them, no one seems to think that they're a weak leader, which strikes me as, as really interesting. I think Boris Johnson's a really good example that you've hit on there, Ali, actually, of someone who that doesn't seem to apply to. Um, and it's fascinating to think about why. He famously did two articles, didn't he, or two letters about about remain or leave before he took his final decision. And he's since said it was a mental exercise to test both viewpoints. But it's in, it, it is interesting about these people changing changing people's minds. And your point about strong leaders. So, have you seen the World Values th- um, story that came out uh, today, which assesses whether you think a strong leader? Who doesn't have recourse? Doesn't need to have recourse to parliament or elections. Do you do you like or do you not like this? It was interesting to check it by age, and the people born in the nineteen nineties said, "No, this is good." So you had a really strong, like um, two thirds, say that's what they would like, and maybe that's only in reflection of the current situation with confusion and uncertainty. But people, the older someone was, the less happy they were with this idea. And it's been a sudden change. So people born in the 80s are not interested in this. And even earlier, it's... Now, that is fascinating. And I wonder where that age correlation comes from. I mean, could it be as simple as there is just a preference when you're a bit younger to desperately want someone to be in charge, to take charge and to tell you what to do, particularly in a, a world that is at times as chaotic as our world looks at the moment, I wonder. That difference between ages is something that came up actually when we interviewed Deborah Mattinson. We were talking in the context of Brexit about all the divides that exist in the country, but particularly the divide that exists and how people voted depending on when they were younger and older. And I think as we all come up to Christmas and start to prepare ourselves for some of those conversations around the dinner table, for a lot of people that is a very real thing in their family and the the debate is whether someone changes their mind whether that polarization will actually disappear over time Mm. as both as the young people get older and keep their views or whether at what point do they did they shift i love the way that you just avoided talking about older people actually dying there (laughs) (laughs) natural popular change as the oldest person in the room i'm I'm happy not to be I mean, joking apart on quite a personal note, I think the referendum vote was the first time that my dad had ever asked me for my view on politics, not just to argue with it, you know, to genuinely want to know what um, some people from a younger generation felt, you know, to talk to his children to see what our view would be. Um if the vote went one way or the other, because he was conscious that it would make a greater and longer difference to the rest of our lives. The intergenerational justice, I think it's called, isn't it? Yeah. 
I've seen a couple of examples. So one example is is in Ireland over its recent votes on gay rights and other big important social issues where older people who didn't think it would affect them and their lives wanted to vote for those who couldn't vote yet because it would influence them. Uh, and actually, I saw, I saw that a little bit in student elections back at university where people were leaving university final year but would vote on a key issue with their students' union because the, the new first years haven't got there yet. And they're basically thinking about those. So they could have just headed off and not bothered. Why bother? Because they're not going to be here. Um, but they thought about the people coming next. Thank you, Craig. What a great note that is to finish on. We've enjoyed every minute of this chat. So thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in as well. We hope you enjoyed it too. And we wish you a great holiday season and a happy new year. We're going to be taking a break for a week or two um, to allow all that chocolate to subside. Um, Next week or in our next episode, we're going to be joined by someone who's changed their mind really quite profoundly. Someone who grew up with one set of beliefs and in fact was active in the KKK but has now completely abandoned that position. We can't wait to hear a bit more about what made him do that and hopefully learn how to inspire others to walk the same path. As always, we'd like to thank our producer, Caroline Crampton, Open Democracy, who helped share this show with their many readers, and Kevin McLeod, who Dream Becomes Real, is used under Creative Commons as our music. You can find out more about us on www.depolarizationproject.com. Thanks. <laughs>